because apparently this is how you manufacture good acoustics in a studio apartment. Yeah? I'm in the closet. Hey, everyone. It's Mark here. You know, one of the amazing things about doing a weekly podcast, and I don't think that any of us thought that it would be like this, but one of the really amazing things is how much our listeners become our family. And we find that when really intense or insane things happen in our own lives, we kind of look forward to talking about them on the air and, and then getting your feedback through your emails or on Twitter or on Facebook and just, just having the sense that the many thousands of you who listen regularly are out there and are are there for us. And we also really love being there for you. Anyway, the point is it's just it's a really special kind of communion that I don't think any of us thought would exist when we set out to uh, to do this podcast. So when things go crazy in the world of current events, um, we kind of want to share them with you. So with the executive order on immigration um, a few days ago, we just all felt like, you know, we have a scheduled show coming up next Thursday. It's going to be an edit of our live show at the JCC Manhattan. But we don't want that to be the next time you hear from us. Um, we want to do something in between now and then to say that we're really shaken by this. And um, and we know a lot of you are as well. And we wanted just to have our say. Um, Liel wrote a really, really beautiful piece about his love for America as a kid growing up in Tel Aviv and then becoming um, an immigrant to America. And Stephanie also wrote a really beautiful piece about dislocation and about fear and about refugee status and what it was like growing up as the granddaughter and, and grandniece of people who had fled Europe um, and were very lucky to come to this country. Honestly, I didn't have anything like that to add. Um, I'm just here to say that I'm really grateful um, that they uh, are good enough to work on this podcast with me. So here's Liel Leibowitz uh, talking Monday night about growing up in Tel Aviv. So I first fell in love with America when I saw its rockets red glaring. They're busting an Iraqi missile right over my head. It was the first Gulf War and my mother, who's no small national security expert, decided to move us from where we lived, which is on the beach in Herzliya, to my grandmother's house in Ramat Gan, which, as we would soon find out, was in the precise 300-square-meter area where literally every one of Saddam Hussein's Scud missiles would hit. So we would wake up in the middle of the night to the sound of this alarm and ran to the underground bomb shelter. And that was a hassle. So eventually I figured out, I'll just move into the bomb shelter full time, which if you're a boy and you're 14, it's kind of a cool thing to do. Besides, it kind of fit my state of mind perfectly. My father had been arrested a couple of months earlier, and everything about life felt hmm, apocalyptic. The Iraqi missiles were a welcome distraction, because one of my good, weird friends sensed my depression. He gave me a great gift, five joints, and a cassette of The Velvet Underground and Nico. I'd never smoked weed before. I'd never listened to The Velvet Underground before. And yet, doing these two things under the threat of physical annihilation felt absolutely right and absolutely liberating. I inhaled, I listened to Lou Reed, and I felt free and powerful and rich with endless possibilities. You say that not a lot of people listened to The Velvet Underground when they first came out, but all those who did ended up starting their own bands. Well, I can tell you that not a lot of kids in Ramat Gan in the winter of 1991 listened to The Velvet Underground, but all those who did, which was pretty much only me, 
ended up leaving the bomb shelter, climbing on the roof, and waiting for the missiles to arrive. And when they did, it was a life-changing experience. It was late at night, and the alarm went off. Ignoring my mother's stern warnings, I ran outside and I looked up. I'll never forget what I saw. As soon as the Iraqi scuds materialized, they were intercepted by the unimprovably named Patriot surface-to-air missiles the American had sent, and the explosion produced colorful etchings in the ink-blue sky, tiny little conflagrations in yellow and red and green, and it was amazing because I realized I was literally looking at the beacons of liberty and at three miles from my house, American men and women were operating these awesome machines, risking their own lives to defend mine. And I knew right away that America was special and that I wanted to be a part of it. And then, one day, I was. Experts usually talk about push factors, which are things that drive the immigrant away from home, like war or famine, and pull factors, things like better economic opportunities or better schools that beckon and invite the immigrant to try her luck elsewhere. I had nothing pushing me out of Israel. I love it. I love Tel Aviv. Even though I didn't always see eye to eye with the policies of the government, I still consider it home. And thinking about the traditional pull factors, those didn't appeal to me either. I didn't come to America because I fantasized about a better job or about an Ivy League education or any other 90210 fantasy. I came because I believed it was divinely elected and because the memory of these missiles and the marijuana and I'm waiting for my man on my Sony Sports Walkman still moved me. It was a religious pilgrimage. I believed in the promise of this exceptional country. Which is why I didn't really care that my first year in America was tough, like immigrant tough. I worked at a hardware store mixing paint, breathing in the fumes, and getting so high I could smell colors. I was so broke, my only forms of entertainment were listening to Loveline on the radio late at night and reading The Village Voice, which I collected for free every Wednesday from those red boxes on the street corners and which I had to make stretch for an entire week. My stomach was empty, but my heart was full. I loved America, and I believed it loved me back. What comes next is beautiful and boring. It's a story you've heard millions of times before. The immigrant works hard, gets into a good school, gets a good job. He meets an American girl, he falls in love, he starts a family. He's moved by the thought that his kids will never have to stand on a rooftop one chilly evening and watch rockets flying over their heads, that they'll never have to mix paint and skip meals, that they won't have the urge to leave the country where they were born. At least, this is what he hopes, like every immigrant who came here before him from Poland or Iraq or Russia or Syria or Sudan or Somalia or Sweden or anywhere else. It's so boring because it's so familiar, and that's precisely why this country is so incredibly special. Only here do we expect the arc of our lives to bend towards happiness. We take it for granted. With every year of life here, I forgot a little bit about that 14-year-old on the roof, high, 
and what it felt to be stoned and awed and hopeful about America. And then this travel ban happened. Like so many others, I spent the weekend furiously reading the news, and a lot of the arguments on either side made sense to me. Sure, we needed to be compassionate. Sure, we needed to protect our borders. Sure, other administrations have limited immigration from these same countries before, and sure, sure, sure. But the more I listened to the arguments, the more I realized something instinctively. This discussion wasn't about facts or about policies. It was really about feeling. How do you feel about America? Is it an eviction notice or an invitation to a party? Do you see carnage or bloom? Is your heart unmoved by those stranded and stuck, or does it break for each person denied the privilege of enjoying the same pursuits as you and your ancestors? Only your heart can answer these questions. You could be a big conservative guy, gun nut, neocon realist, and then comes one defining moment and forces you to rethink who you really are. And you realize that who you really are is 14, looking at the sky. All tomorrow's parties is playing now. And feeling with the full force of youth and weed and unbridled optimism that it's going to be all right. I turned on the TV and I saw thousands rushing to the airports. It wasn't as kick-ass as watching missiles explode. And I haven't smoked weed since, well, since Lou Reed died. But as I tuned in, I was 14 again. And again, I was watching America keep her promise to me, to all of us. Somewhere, I hope, some 14-year-old in some bombed-out country is watching this too, taking note and taking heart. Stephanie Butnick, uh, who is, as you know, my co-host and also a deputy editor of Tablet, who really puts the print magazine together. She grew up on Long Island, um, the daughter of parents born in America, but uh, but not not all of her grandparents were. And uh, and here's what she had to say: her thoughts on this past week. Stephanie Butnick. So I remember during graduate school, I was on a fellowship through the Auschwitz Jewish Center, a really amazing organization that's based in uh, Oświęcim in Poland. It was the day we were touring Birkenau. We had been to Auschwitz I the previous day, and as we headed back to the camps for a second soul-crushing day, one of the other fellows walked up to me. This must be really hard for you, he said. You know, because your grandparents? The comment stung, though not for the reason you might expect. I resented his implication that this visit, to a place of universal horror, would be uniquely challenging for me, that everyone in the group might be looking over to make sure the Auschwitz survivor's grandkid was doing okay, that I was somehow different or my experience more significant. To me, this was as universal as it gets. Anyone who isn't horrified and ultimately edified by a trip to a concentration camp is doing something very wrong. And to put me in a special category for what my grandparents endured and survived felt simply undeserved and wrong. But maybe he was onto something. That day, surrounded by the barren remains of Birkenau, I completely lost it. The Holocaust is my twisted birthright, 
a looming legacy and a monumental part of my identity. But I'd never in a million years think to begin a sentence with, as someone whose relatives died in the Holocaust, or to presume that anything I said had greater weight because of what my grandparents and their siblings and cousins went through. I've had laughably little to complain about in my life, and there would be nothing so disrespectful as me climbing on the backs of my relatives in search of some moral high ground. I don't remember when I learned about the Holocaust. I didn't learn about it from my grandparents, who died within months of each other in 1992, when I was five. I wasn't told about it by my great-aunts and uncles, who picked me up with arms that were tattooed and liver-spotted. But I honestly can't remember a time when I didn't know about the Holocaust. Or obsess over it. It was probably the books. The Devil's Arithmetic, The Diary of Anne Frank, Number the Stars. Those books are terrifying. Any one of them would send a sheltered suburban preteen in an, into an existential panic. And I took my existential panic very seriously. Where would we hide? Who would hide us? A difficult prospect when you grow up in a town full of Jews. What will we do? This wasn't just your average teenage angst. This was some full-on, next-level, holy-shit apocalyptic dread. Thank God the Hunger Games books were still years away from being published. They would have done me in. It was a chest-tightening, body-numbing terror that somehow managed to encompass both fear and devastating disappointment in humanity at the same time. I was fine. I knew that. This was a different world. We were in America. We were on Long Island. Nothing was going to happen. Still, the specter of fear and its flip side of compulsive mental planning and preparedness never really went away. Those epigeneticists sure are onto something. This weekend, though, I felt that same sense of dread bubble over, its steady hum building in my chest since November. I'm not unhinged. Donald Trump isn't Hitler. This isn't the Holocaust 2.0. At least I don't think so. But the questions we love to throw around rhetorically, what would you have done in Germany or Poland in the 1930s as things got bad? What would you have done to stop it? These are suddenly questions we have to ask ourselves. With time rushing by, what would you do? With the clock running down, what would you do? Our producer, Alyssa Goldstein, also had something to share. You might know her as one of the couple Australians who work at Tablet and sometimes appear on Unorthodox. And she is Australian, but for the last few years, she's called New York her home. Here's Alyssa Goldstein. Gertrude Stein once said, America is my country and Paris is my hometown, and it is as it has come to be. I've always loved that quote. It perfectly encapsulates what it means to be an expatriate, to have an identity split between two worlds. And in that final, somewhat roundabout clause, as it has come to be, there's complexity and movement. Gertrude Stein didn't just move to Paris. Paris moved to her. Well, for years I've been saying, Australia is my country and New York is my hometown. I'll always love Australia, the country that took in my family as refugees and immigrants, the country that gave me the best, safest childhood imaginable. But in the last six and a half years, New York has come to be mine. But where does this leave me in America? See, I thought New York had come to be mine separate to the rest of the United States. As a foreigner living in Brooklyn and working in Manhattan, I thought I could detach myself from the fate of the country as a whole, and for a long time I did. But in the last year, my relationship to America has shifted. I've been thinking a lot about how my fate, my very existence, dovetails with that of the United States. 
I wouldn't be alive if America hadn't entered World War II. My dad's parents were liberated by Allied forces from concentration camps in Europe. My father was born in a displaced persons camp in the American zone of occupied Germany after the war. And American Jewish aid organisations helped my dad and grandparents resettle in Australia a few years later, along with thousands of other Jewish refugees. And then there's the fact of my conception, which occurred in Atlanta, Georgia, in 1983, where my family was living while my dad worked at Emory Hospital. They moved back to Melbourne a few months before I was born, leaving dual citizenship just out of reach for me. I moved here in 2010 for graduate school, and America has been good to me. I've become an adult here. To borrow from Gertrude Stein, I've come to be. There's not a single day where I don't think about all of this, where I don't panic about the future of this vast, complicated, wonderful country that's given my family and me so much. I think about my privilege and good fortune in life and how that comes back not just to Australia, but to America too. I think about how trivial my own visa concerns are compared to the millions of people in this country who are much more vulnerable than me. But most of all, now that the future of America seems so uncertain, that democracy seems so imperiled, that I'm at risk of losing something precious, I realise that I do love this country. Not in the jingoistic way of a patriot or the romantic way of an immigrant, but in the way of me, a 33-year-old Australian resident alien who has been the beneficiary of American democracy and generosity her entire life, even if she didn't always realise it. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine. We are produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkit and we're edited, as ever, by Noah Levinson. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. If anything that we ever do moves you, um, the biggest way you can thank us is by spreading the word. Uh, tell your friends on Facebook uh, or Instagram or wherever you are that, um, that there's something worth listening to. And again, thank you for being part of our lives.